CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Doc Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs, but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today we return to the subject of ketamine and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Today's guest is Dr. Gita Vade. Uh, I've known Gita for a few years, and I heard her speak at the Horizon Psychedelics Conference in New York a month ago, and she gave a brilliant talk, really talking about the role of ketamine in psychotherapy and how it's changing the way we think about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and psychiatry. And so I wanted to really get into this with her about what that's all about. What are the benefits? How does it work? How does it compare to other psychedelics? And I should tell you, I mean, she's a key figure nationally in this now. I mean, you you Google her, you'll see her all over the place. She's a member of the Mount Sinai Psychedelic Psychotherapy Research Group. She's a lead instructor at the Ketamine Training Center. She's a co-founder of the Center for Natural Intelligence, which is a multidisciplinary lab that's dedicated to psychedelic psychotherapy innovation and clinical practice. So she is truly one of the world's leading experts in this. So Gita, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me to come and talk on Psychoactive with you, Ethan. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, I'm really glad you're here. So look, let's just start off by by setting the stage. So just explain in layman's terms as best you can, what is ketamine actually? What distinguishes it from opioids or a normal antidepressants or uh, other drugs used for anesthesiology? I mean, what what is it? I think that really there's different ways we look at medicines. You look at the neurotransmitters they're working on. And in that way, ketamine is a little bit of a, a dirty drug because it hits a bunch of different receptors. But I would say what's different about it, um, in high doses, you can really have anesthetic effects. In lower doses is what I'm more interested in is it's kind of has its psychedelic properties, which I feel are an incredibly important aspect of work in psychiatry and psychotherapy for expanded states of consciousness. But in lower doses, I oftentimes wonder, is dissociation the right word? Because sometimes I feel like it can be at higher doses where you have that disconnection. But also I feel like there's a differentiation almost that happens where you can actually have more access to parts of yourself and more of almost a distinguishing that allows one to access more fully different parts of oneself. So it's an interesting term, but it has been used as a dissociative anesthetic. Basically, if somebody's having surgery, it basically allows that person to feel that the part of their body that's being operated on is sort of separate from the rest of themselves. No, I think at the high doses, you just kind of lose consciousness completely. So you're, you know, completely out, right? And in, you know, and lower doses, you kind of don't feel your body. You feel like sometimes people even have the experiences in lower doses of not having a body or being out of their body or hovering over their body until they suddenly have no consciousness at all. You know, and you can tailor it to drop out of thinking mind and to travel through the different layers of self to beyond self until you kind of go further and further out to having no awareness. And is it used in combination with other drugs, whether it's in surgery or pain management or treating depression? Oftentimes it is used as a cocktail in anesthesia and also even in psychiatry, you know, certainly Spravado which is the only FDA-approved version of ketamine, they use it with other antidepressants as part of their protocol for treatment-resistant depression. And that's one of the nice things about ketamine is that it has very few interactions with other antidepressants. So it does allow one to potentially, if necessary, combine with other medications. And does that also mean when it's being used also illicitly that unlike, say, alcohol or opioids or benzos, where if you combine them with one another or some other drugs, it can be very dangerous, that ketamines may be more like marijuana in the sense that you're not going to be dying from a mixture? That's a really good point. Yes, it's it really helps with the safety of it because you don't have to worry so much about them bumping up other levels with most of these compounds or else what can happen with some of the other psychedelics, a blocking effect where you have very little efficacy because another drug that's working on serotonin is in the air and interferes. That certainly happens with the SSRIs, for example, and psilocybin or some of the classic psychedelic medicines. So it's really helpful for being able to have much more control over what you're dosing and fewer side effects and interactions. Mm -hmm. Just tell us a little something about the diversity of ways in which ketamine has been used outside this psychotherapeutic context. I mean, it used to be described in the media as the animal tranquilizer, yes. right? But it's also been used widely around the world, I think, in pain management. It's been used yes. in, in medicine on the battlefields. Well, ketamine has an interesting history because it did start off being developed as an anesthetic 
And so it has a really interesting background in that it kind of entered into the psychedelic world in medicine through a whole different route, which I think makes it very um, unique and has had a lot of implications in how it's being practiced in the current moment. It's a very powerful anesthetic, and it's one that's very unusual because you don't have to worry about its cardiovascular effects or its respiratory depression. So it makes it very versatile and easy to use, not only for surgeries, but also in the battlefield, almost like the buddy system, because you don't have to have such intense monitoring. It's also effective for pain and analgesia, so it's used in the emergency room. It's been used very safely and studied with children who seem to do much better with what they call the emergent phenomena or the psychedelic phenomena. So it has, you know, had a lot of use in ERs, operating rooms around the world. And it's in those contexts, very widely available and very affordable. And I remember, you know, there's all this stuff back in the 90s, I think, in the kind of rave scenes and then also in the gay club scene in New York, I remember, and other places. So it had that other role, right, of being popular as a kind of, you know, party drug. And also, I think it's gotten a bit of a bad reputation, even though it's been used a lot in the rave scene and as a party drug, because, you know, in higher doses, one can have what's called a K-hole or kind of actually pass out on the floor. It's a very unattractive look, which I think hasn't really represented ketamine well, because I think it's gotten a worse reputation than perhaps other recreational drugs. I was watching recently Hamilton's Pharmacopeia, uh, the TV show by Hamilton Morris, and he has an episode on ketamine. And he's talking with somebody who's been deeply committed to ketamine for, for decades. And one of the points he makes is, you know, the odd thing about ketamine is it doesn't have a kind of coherent narrative historically in the way that, say, LSD or even mushrooms or peyote do, and that maybe there's something about its incredibly varied uses and reputations and contexts meant that somehow it avoided the labeling or the stigmatizing to the same degree as other psychedelics, and and, and as a result, typically did not become criminalized in the same way. What do you think about that? I think that's That's true. I think it has kind of evaded some of those kind of connotations. On the other hand, it has stuck with some of a different uh, kind of reputational kind of flavor, such as it being an anesthetic or a tranquilizer. But it has a kind of checkerboard past, I would say. And when we're talking about different applications, I I can't resist mentioning how ketamine was also the drug used to rescue the Thai boys who were trapped in the cave. Do you remember that event? Mm Oh, vaguely. Yeah, tell us that story. 2019. Well, they were like some kids who were trapped in a cave and they had to rescue them and they used ketamine as the anesthetic to be able to get them out of these caves that I think had collapsed at the time. And once again, you know, it's used really well with children as an anesthetic. But that was an interesting way ketamine also showed up in the news. Uh Uh-huh. You know, you said before that children deal with the psychoactive effects maybe better than adults? Did I get you? Is that what, Was that the point you were saying? And that yes. therefore, this is one of those ones where there might be a lot more latitude for administering ketamine to children and to teens? I wouldn't know if it's even latitude as much as it's been used really comfortably with children. And even now in ERs is used because it's so safe and short acting and well tolerated. And kids don't get disturbed by the kind of psychedelic experiences, maybe because their minds and their subjective experiences are much more fluid. They seem to roll with it a lot 
more comfortably than adults who are not prepared for it, who can have really strange visitations with aliens and get freaked out pretty easily, particularly if they're not expecting them, and they're just sort of going in for a procedure. I see. So like when a kid sees an alien, it's like, hey! (laughs) They're like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, so now, I guess to, to move forward then, is it, what, 10, 15 years ago when research really begins to emerge that ketamine can be remarkably effective in dealing with intractable depression? Yes, it's been really interesting to see the studies at Yale where they recognized it for its antidepressant property. And I think that's really where this groundbreaking research started. And I think that really kind of opened up an important movement, I think, in psychiatry when there's been such a paucity of new antidepressants or treatment approaches for such a long time as depression is escalating at a very, very unfortunate rate. How did they come up with the idea of thinking about ketamine to treat depression? Was it that they were seeing that people were giving ketamine for other reasons, just seemed to benefit in terms of mood? I mean, is that that where the hints were? Well, I think it was recognized also from anesthesia, the observations of the antidepressant effect in individuals who were receiving recognitions, which is where a lot of these findings emerge, that you kind of start paying attention and taking note. Mm -hmm. So for you, uh, Dr. Gita Vade, tell me about your evolution into this. Is it that you yourself were using, you know, experimenting various psychedelics and curious about them and tried ketamine um, for personal use? Was it a, a professional frustration in what you could accomplish as a psychotherapist dealing with your patients through traditional models of analysis? I mean, how, what brought you to ketamine? Actually, it's none of those answers. I was working very well in my private practice in New York City as a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, really enjoying my work. So there was definitely no frustration, and I felt very gratified by the work I was doing. But very interested in the research that was you know, coming out about psychedelics and their efficacy. And I think my interest in them really sparked, though, is some of my colleagues who were also psychoanalysts that I were working with who were older, really shared with me about their early career experiences You know, some of them had worked in the 60s, one in particular, a really good friend of mine. He talked about working with Humphrey Osmond back in the 60s on some of his alcohol studies with LSD. And Humphrey Osmond, as I'm sure you know, is the Canadian psychiatrist who coined the term psychedelics. And so hearing some of those stories, it was extraordinary, mind-blowing and exciting. So to see and hear this research emerging got me very interested. And through my own work, I met a patient that I saw very infrequently, maybe twice a year for medication management. And just sitting with him was so different, my experience of him, that I kept trying to dig around to figure out what had changed in his life. And after spending quite a lot of time asking a bunch of questions and not finding much satisfaction, he finally said, what are you trying to get at? And I said to him, exactly as I'm telling you, how different the experience of sitting with him was. And I couldn't account for it because nothing seemed to have changed in his life. And he sort of said, well, how am I different? And I said, I can have emotional contact with you in a way I've never experienced you before. And I'd known this man for several years, even though we saw each other relatively infrequently. And he sort of said, well, since you've noticed, I'll explain to you. I'm working with an underground facilitator. And 
you know, he was an older gentleman, had been also intrigued by the end of life studies and found an underground facilitators and, and had amazing results. So I had asked him, would you mind introducing this fellow to me if he's comfortable? And that led to a lot of conversations and, you know, research on my own part. And actually, when I first tried these medicines, I had such a huge, expansive experience that I, you know, was vibrating for a month. But I immediately knew from that experience, just having my own access, the therapeutic implications. So I immediately was on this path and excited mission to find out everything about it, who was working in the underground, the overground, the research, and wanted to learn everything and get involved with everything. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So, Gita, imagine you don't know me, and I come in, I've been diagnosed with intractable depression. What does our interaction look like, and how does that lead into the first session, and how do you decide whether I'm taking it in what dose or how? Or Just walk me through that. 
I'm happy to do so. So usually when I meet someone, I would just want to get to know you. I mean, I have been in practice for a long time, so I don't have to go through a checklist. We'd have a nice conversation and I'd ask you to tell me about yourself so I could understand where you are in your life presently and what's going on and what leads you into seeing me and what are you currently dealing with. And in that way, I'm trying to get a comprehensive history. I'm also in the moment trying to assess the person's capacities for self-reflection, introspection, self-knowledge. Do they have a sort of sense of their own narratives? Do they have a sense of the patterns in their life? And so that can pretty much inform right away whether the person might need a little bit more preparation to set the stage for a psychedelic experience, or have they already done that? Have they already done enough and have enough skills to really go into a session? So that sort of sets the stage, and that will determine how many sessions we might need. Oftentimes, if someone seems to have a lot of knowledge and awareness, the issue, and I have all my questions answered, which sometimes can happen even in the course of a session, the issue gets to be about relationship building and safety. So I will suggest meeting however many times makes sense to develop a relationship with the person, to let them know who I am, how I work, to explain about the treatment, to understand what they might imagine would happen, to get clear on them being clear on their obstacles and emphasizing them so that we could understand how this might be a way of them liberating themselves from those stuck patterns. And to sometimes I like to identify them not even so much as to know that's what we're working on to go into it as much as the opposite. It sort of turns it upside down to these are the patterns that we want to help you break out of. So after we have um, that sorted out, it really is about preparing for the session. And on the session itself, a person will come to my office for the three-hour session, fasting beforehand, and they will come and we will sit and talk for the first 45 minutes or so. We're really just talking about what's on the person's mind, what to expect, where they are, what's come up for them, and we'll sit with each other so that the person feels comfortable before they're invited to lie on the couch and I'll play music and have eye shades, and then I will dose them while sharing with them what's going to happen. Oftentimes, I'll start with a tiny dose because I like to have a test dose to know how they're going to respond, a low dose, just to assess how they're doing. Within three minutes, it'll come on. In that three minutes, I might invite the person to go through a body scan so I will bring their awareness to their body so they can start focusing on themselves, gather their thoughts, and start the process of really deep listening to themselves. And by the time the medicine comes on, we'll have gone through the body scan and I like the smaller doses because you can assess how sensitive they are. So I can tailor it. If someone's really sensitive, they'll go quite deep. If it's very mild, it's like a bringing themselves into an experience. Their body softens. They start relaxing. The, the chatter of their mind starts dissolving and they start becoming more present to themselves. And also they can feel my attention being with them and my presence. I'm just breathing with them. I'm just listening to them. I'm trying to listen to how they're doing, what it feels like. You can really feel the energetic shifts between two people, very much like when you have children. You know, you can feel when a child is hyper or when they're relaxed and where they are. So it's really nice to follow where the person is and the movement of the energy between the person. And then I'll check in with them. If I sense someone's anxious, I might intervene earlier, hold their hand. And I'll listen to what the process is like. If someone's in a really beautiful space, I will let them stay where they are and I will check in with them. If they're very mild, I might say, would you mind if I give you a little bit more? And I will adjust it so we can go deeper. But I follow the person's process. If someone's in an ecstatic state and doing incredibly well, I will you know, just check in with them or stay with them. 
And when I feel it sort of shifting, I might ask them where they are and would they mind if I give them more to keep them at that platform. And then when the person slowly comes out of the session, I'll encourage them to really take their time to linger in the experience and to notice as much as possible how they start reconstituting, how the anxiety comes back, how the chatter comes back. It's a really interesting way of discovering from leaving yourself of how you're put together. It's almost like you start stepping back into yourself and studying the whole structure of yourself from experience. And it's really structural. You'll sometimes people will be like, wow, the anxiety just suddenly lodged back in my chest. It's really shocking how we how we don't usually have a chance to notice how we're assembled. And this is a really amazing discovery. And then at the end of the session, when the person comes out slowly, we'll have a lot of time to sit together and talk about what they experienced, as well as me share with them what I saw happen. We'll try not to put too much into words because sometimes that can really condense and squash an experience that is really expansive. But we'll cover some of the pieces that they may want to share with me or want to report to me or have me remember. And I also like to share while we're in that moment because in that space, it's not only an exchange of really trying to um, understand what happened. Both parties both the patient themselves is in a very open and defended state, as am I in resonance. So it's just really nice to be in each other's presence. And that felt sense of being with each other after that experience is incredibly beautiful and very healing, I think, in and of itself. It's a very important part of it. And I won't let a person leave my office until they're really safe to leave. When you say administer, is it always intravenous drip or is it another form? I, I either use lozenges or intramuscular, but I'm a big fan of intramuscular dosing because I can really tailor it. It's very precise. It comes on in three minutes and I can really give a little bit more or I can't take it away. So I like to really know sensitivity and gauge that so I can really guide the person. And on the music, is that you determine it or is there a discussion or can I say I don't really like that music or how does that happen? I'm very open when it comes to music, but I have a playlist that's pretty neutral and I go from there and guide it based on what the person, sometimes people don't like the music and I'm happy to shift it to what works for them, including I had one person say, can I have the Rolling Stones, which I really thought was a bad idea. And it turned out they thought so too, but I was happy to say, well, we can try it. And if we doesn't work out, can we then move it? But I think it's really important to have that be attuned to the person and the person feel heard. And usually you can tell when the music, it really gets into energy and the tone and the quality. If you're listening carefully, it's really quite easy to know where it goes. One of the things that I always keep an eye on is when someone is really open, the music is part of the whole experience. It's it's like we're all vibration. And so it's really an interesting element. And in terms of talking, are some patients talking a lot during this session and other people barely talking at all? Do you encourage some people to talk more, to talk less? Yes, it's very varied. I, I really encourage people to do what they feel would be most valuable for them. I do start off with saying, you know, I do sometimes find that when people talk a lot, it can take them out of the session because you know, you're almost in two places in one. It can actually limit the space and the involvement going deeper within themselves. Um, so I do make that suggestion that if they're comfortable, I'm not going to intervene and feel free not to talk to me. But I also let them know if they would prefer to talk to me and that facilitates their presence. I've had people want to talk to me because it helps them feel safer to listen and feel really free to do what feels right to them. And it's so variable. I have some people who feel liberated at the chance of not having to be bothered to take care of me and to do just focus on themselves. And one person who actually said, I prefer you 
don't talk to me at all and really stay out of my treatment because other people want to talk the whole time. I know that standing up can be a little challenging because ketamine's effect on balance and wobbly legs and all this. But otherwise, I mean, do people tend to just lie on their back or do they move around, get onto their stomach, on their side, uh, sit up? Most people lie down, although I have had some people who like to really move and stretch out. So I also keep some mattresses when that happens. I, I oftentimes, when I know that's going to be a thing, I have a mattress on the floor because it's nice to be able to move for those who like to move. And it can be really nice to move. And some people get very mobile on it. So it's so, so variable. And then people who are very active, the next session, it can be the complete opposite. And you learn a lot from observing how their bodies move or don't move during the session? Absolutely. Paying really close attention to every aspect, what they're saying, but also the energy in the room, what's happening in their body. And oftentimes they're beautiful mudras. It's almost as a communication from their being, through their hands and through their whole body. But really, the hands are very important in ketamine sessions. You'll oftentimes see expressions, mudras, prayerful gestures, really elegant, almost like prayers from the body. And it's really interesting what comes through. <laughs> it sounds like a lot more fun than sitting in a psychotherapist chair across from somebody on a couch or a chair and just having a verbal conversation, Gita. Honestly, it really is. It's the most spectacular, amazing event. Each one is so unique and so beautifully rich. Gita, when you're talking to somebody during this ketamine session, is there something fundamentally different about the quality of that compared to ordinary psychotherapy without ketamine? Yeah, I think pretty much everything. It's ways of really being in resonance and in contact and support and using all of these different modalities to do so and ideally not words because that puts you back into your head and these people when they're on when we're on the couch in that state you're not really in a thinking place and it's hard to articulate and it's actually hard to think in that cognitive way you know the session is so remotely different if i'm talking to someone it really is based on checking in on them or seeing where they are or if i'm noticing they're anxious and the communication is different. I might choose words. Sometimes I might choose a piece of music just to touch someone. I'll give you an example. I had a fellow who got really, really anxious. I could feel he was so anxious in the session. And actually, his body started shaking a little bit. So I kind of checked in with him and asked him if he was okay. And he didn't seem to be responding to that. I asked him if I could hold his hand, which I could also feel like he couldn't really receive it, even though he let me do it. I didn't feel like it was soothing him. So ultimately, I shifted the music to what was, you know, a very gentle lullaby, and he immediately calmed down, and his whole nervous system calmed down. At the end of the session, you know, I felt that allowed him to make contact. So that's an example of ways of communicating with someone. At the end of the session, he told me that, you know, we talked about it, and he said he got really anxious and felt alone and had memories of being abandoned in his crib. And he didn't remember me actually reaching out to him or me touching him, but he felt I was singing to him. He actually thought the lullaby and the music was me singing to him as his mother or as myself. It was some confused combination and was really shocked and I think slightly disappointed to realize I hadn't sung. And so that's a good example of how it varies and what the communication it's like. The process itself, it's an art form. There's not cookie cutter. It's a little bit like having children. If you have a parent who's by the book and is just having the person on a schedule that's not going to be a great parent. You really have to try and listen to someone. And it's really the dance between two people. That's where the music is. That's where something can happen. And I've always felt this, even when I was a 
regular psychotherapist in New York City with none of these psychedelics, I felt we would come together, the two people would have this encounter, and we would talk about, you know, what was going on in a person's life, and I would listen, and I would often offer some clever ideas or interpretations, and try and say smart things, show I was listening, come up with some clever way of understanding and showing how I understood what was happening or some insights into behavior, recognizing almost that that was the, that was almost the exchange that had to happen for something secret that was going to go on between the two of us, where a real other process was happening, where we could learn to trust each other, learn to know each other. And when there were moments when the defenses have both dropped in both parties and you could have this strong emotional connection, that's where the magic would happen. And so that's always been the kind of dance of the practice in my experience. And with psychedelics, you're right in that field right away. So it's it's a really interesting, exciting idea to then just go further and feel, how can you utilize that space better? How can you step into it? And to me, it feels like it shifts the field into one of a very different quality of work. And I do think one thing that you hear a lot about in this field is the mystical experience or the liminal kind of experience that happens in these in these sublime experiences, because I think that's a very important dimension. It does shift the healing work into almost spiritual work. And I think we need to get better at conceiving of how to how to really have methodologies, which are not DSM-based only, but different structures to really house the process better and to take advantage of the field that's at play. I mean, it sounds like what's similar with other psychedelics, I guess, in some respects, is people can obviously derive enormous benefits from using these psychedelics, using them all all by themselves, right? Or with a friend, without being in psychotherapy of any sort. And we know that ketamine is sufficiently powerful that even when it's done without any psychotherapy, it can still have a major positive effect in alleviating depression, at least for some period of time thereafter. But that the advantage of integrating the use of ketamine or another psychedelic with psychotherapy is that you increase the chances of a positive outcome and maybe a positive longer outcome, and you decrease the risks. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I would say that's probably fair. At the same time, I would say, as much as I think anyone can have a powerful experience with ketamine, and I've certainly seen that without any kind of preparation, really, or guidance, or limited guidance, let's just say, I think that at times I do wonder how much of that is a bit of a false friend in that, yes, you have an experience, but it's almost a lost opportunity, or even at times can almost close the possibility, make make one almost like a little bit dulled to the nuances of what's actually being available in an experience. So it almost moves you further away from a deeper inquiry. You know, so I have my questions about that, actually. I mean, I do see so many people use these medicines recreationally. And, you know, I don't have any kind of questions about that. But I do question, are people actually getting relief? And are they actually more enlightened or healthier? Or is it more of making the unbearable bearable? (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And helping one cope, which is fine. But that's still a little bit different than actually a deeper inquiry that could be even more useful or more radical in terms of possibilities of growth and openings. I mean, it does appear that the effect wears off after a couple of weeks. And so therefore, people come back in, sometimes multiple times, 
Does it just vary dramatically person to person? Are there times when a single session is enough to cure somebody of depression for a very long period of time? It's incredibly variable as of just an antidepressant. If we're just using it as a pure antidepressant with very limited psychotherapy, it is going to have limited effects, even though they might be the rare person who's just going to have a radical experience that's sustained. I think that it gets to be very different and enhanced when you augment it with psychotherapy, when there really is a psychotherapy process. I've had people just have very powerful experiences and then have come back and needed a second session several months later. Sometimes, you know, one session even is so profound that they need a lot of time to integrate it. And so it's really very variable. But that's not just employing it as an one-off administration of medicine. That's with a fuller process, which which can take, you know, not that much longer. You know, my sessions tend to be three hours, so there's plenty of time. But it's a different process where you're kind of actually having a little bit more of um, these other threads that are in the experience, not only a discovery that is tailored to the individual with some tools of knowing how to navigate it and later on integrate it, but I think also the the experience of being with the person and having being seen and having certain functions provided, which I think is what the psychotherapy shifts are you can suddenly have a much different process, which can be really quite profound and tailored to the individual. I would never have guessed, really, how much healing is possible with these medicines, the creativity, the mysteries, the poetry of people, and the natural healing capacities, and the wisdom that's held in the bodies. I'm every day blown away. Every day I'm blown away. I never thought this would have been possible in a million years. I am so shocked and so blown away and so in awe of human beings. I have to say, I'm just, I'm so grateful to do my work because I feel like I learn so much from people every day because the intelligence and the creativity is just mind-blowing to me. Can you give me a few case reports? I'm happy to. There's actually two people that come to mind who have you know, very different stories, but a little bit of an overlap. One is a young woman I saw who was quite brilliant at an Ivy League college who had been in tons and tons of therapy because she had had a terrible history of two rape experiences, once in high school and once early in her college life, and, you know, had coped well and had done tons of therapy over this and felt she dealt with it pretty much, even though she was still incredibly traumatized and disturbed by the episode and triggered whenever there would be events that would ignite recognition and she was in the same environment. So that would happen fairly regularly. She had the most moving discovery in the session of seeing herself as a kind of um, a woven fabric. And she saw there was a stain on the fabric, which is where she'd had the rape, but she also saw this intricate fabric with embroidery and so much richness and so much stitching and saw how much that stain had become her center of gravity and not all the other stitches of the whole unfolding tapestry. And she immediately felt almost relieved of having to have that be such a big force in her life. And she sort of said to me when she was walking over to my office, a fellow had said to her, you know, admired her and said, you know, something kind of very flattering to her and hadn't asked for her number, hadn't imposed upon her, just had complimented her. 
And she questioned, why wasn't that her center of gravity, this generous, you know, appreciation of who she was with no strings attached? And she was, you know, just so brilliant in her creative ability to take possession of her life and re reframe it for herself in this most elegant creative way that really stuck with her. Another session which I think is just as powerful is with an older woman who had done a lot of practice with yoga. In fact, that was her profession. And when she came and did the session, she actually had a lot of vibration in her pelvis and felt energy was being released from it and saw for herself how early childhood rape of her life that she thought she had dealt with and put aside actually was still being held in her body. And she felt she was able to release it along with a recognition in ways that she could see somehow revealed to her in her experience, not in language, but more in images. She had this download of understanding of how much that event had in fact shaped her life. This is a woman in her 60s and how much it had impacted her in a myriad of ways, culminating with her recognizing how she had kept herself small, how she didn't have a voice, how she had been afraid, all of which she had been kind of oblivious to. And it wasn't a situation of feeling sorry for herself. It was more of deep compassion for herself and almost an awakening as well as a repair simultaneously with the acknowledgement and the release of some of the trauma in her body energetically of a reclaiming of herself. I have to say what's really moving about working with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, ketamine, but I think all of the medicines, is it's so beautiful, these stories. But actually, at the end of the session, she even looked stronger and more self-possessed in her being. It wasn't just descriptive or intellectual. It was really embodied. And so that's another example. I have many examples. It's very exciting work. It really allows one to find the essence of oneself as well as a disconnect from these narratives or these distractions that hijacked us or are too dominant on our lives. So you can have a balance and a chance to really, you know, I think take possession of one's life and responsibility or write the chapter of your life that you want instead of being stuck on these earlier narratives. And, and I think that's very unique about ketamine because it really allows, I think, a way of really breaking out of some of these patterns and habits and conditioning and being able to open up new possibilities in a very direct way. And the way you listen and observe your patients, has that changed in major ways? Major ways. You know, I've, I've been a, always a psychoanalyst, which is a very particular training for those who don't know, aside from being a psychiatrist and residency training and all of that fellowship. It's a whole additional training where you have to have a lot of didactics. But in addition to that, you have to have your own analysis as well as treat a bunch of patients in analysis, which is endless, four or five days a week on the couch. And so it's about a 10-year additional training. So that's always been my orientation. And that has changed completely because the work that I did in that domain is not enough, really. If you want to do the deeper process, it becomes a different mode of listening, which, of course, requires an equivalent kind of knowledge of yourself with these medicines. But I really feel like you can listen with your whole being and you can really meditate with another person and be in a synchronized state with another person 
And it's just so exciting, the space between two people and the knowledge that can come through you. It's a very different way of listening. I feel like you can almost listen with your soul or listen with your being and hear and understand the music of another person, not just their mind, which is one thread of what's being communicated at any given moment. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You know, I'll tell you, I mean, my experience with ketamine is so limited, but, um, you know, last year I had an experience with ketamine and it was a friend of mine and of yours who's, who's also doing, you know, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and offered to, you know, sit with me for a session. And, and there were a few things that really struck me about it. I mean, normally, even when I do, say, say, mushrooms at a very high dose, I mean, where I may look psychotic, but even when I do that, I remain quite grounded. I know where I am. I don't go off into some metasphere or something like that. With ketamine, what struck me, I mean, after the initial discomfort of having to dissolve these lozenges in my mouth, because we weren't doing IV or IM administration, that when it came on, first of all, it came on so remarkably gently. 
That was the, one of the first things that struck me about it. And then parts of it became like a sort of mushroomy psychedelic trip with some intense focus on some things. But there was this moment in my experience when the whole thing only lasted 45 minutes, I guess, or a little bit more, where I found myself in this situation, which I guess is not totally uncommon. It was almost like that movie Avatar, the imagery of the Avatar. And mm -hmm. and in it, I'm, I'm in this kind of almost underwater, this almost like swamp. And I'm, I'm there and I'm thinking, I'm underwater. I can't breathe. And then I thought, but I'm breathing. And then I'm kind of, you know, swimming forward and it's dark and it's murky and I can't see anything. And I'm going, God, this is like, this should be scary. I mean, there could be underwater snakes and things. And I, I have no idea the black was it, but I wasn't scared. And then I had this feeling, I said, oh my God. So this is how I could pass through life into death. And it was this first time I'd ever had that sensation or that thought or that feeling of moving from life into death and of doing so in a way which rather being filled with some feel, sense of fear or, or, or horror just seemed almost gentle and accepting in a way. And it was liberating in regard. And so I've since read some stuff about ketamine and people's, you know, how they relate to death. But I wonder in your therapeutic practice, you know, how have you, have you encountered things like this in people in terms of that element of freedom or in terms of how they think and approach death? Absolutely. And thank you for sharing your account. It's such a beautiful description of ketamine that you provide. It is a very gentle medicine. And I think it's really good for those of us. And I think both you and I fall into this category, Ethan, of being, you know, very much in our heads a lot of the time. And so to actually have a chance to actually drop out of your thinking mind and find a lot of the knowledge and wisdom and beauty in other sensual realms and other kind of ways of knowing and navigating is quite profound and a big expansion. And I love your insight about transition into death. And there's a lot of work being done actually in this area about end of life issues, particularly with ketamine. So I'm excited that you bring that up. And there's actually even an FDA study that Ketamine Training Center had just got approved for, for conscious dying, which is very exciting. That bunch of sort of sites across the U.S. are going to be really offering a protocol with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for end of life. And, you know, I've had an incredible experience with a few patients working with ketamine for end of life issues. I'm very interested in weaving it together with meditation. Deepak Chopra, who's a partner and a colleague of mine, he and I have been working on a protocol looking at ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for end-of-life issues with meditation. And I'll offer another vignette because this is the person who wanted me to share this with the field. Working with her when she was approaching actual death, this was a lifelong meditator who had really wanted to die consciously and didn't understand why she was encountering so much anxiety since she had a really full life and had 20-year history of breast cancer. So she had a lot of time to prepare for it and felt satisfied by her life, but felt really anxious when she was coming down to have to decide when to go into hospice. And so she reached out to Deepak and me and we did a session together, which was one of the most beautiful experiences of a guided meditation, talking about the nature of reality and then actually going into a ketamine experience. And she, like you, kind of 
felt like she was going into a tunnel and then talked about feeling as if she suddenly left her body, which was for her extraordinary because she was in so much pain at the time, to just not have a body and to be in the music was, she said, just so freeing of anxiety. But what she did teach me, which I thought was really interesting, was she actually felt the piece that for her, aside from having that experience, which felt so relieving and the transition to death that made her feel hopeful and open to to death, was she felt actually the presence of having two facilitators supporting her and accompanying her through death was perhaps the most single variable that she felt was helpful, even though she was surrounded by people. She felt so alone in having to actually take this path towards death because she didn't want to upset all her family members of sharing what it was like for her, what she was encountering, what her fears were. So to have a place to really hold hands with people who cared about her and were able to almost act as doulas in this transition was just as important. You know, I was watching recently, Gita, talk you gave a video um, at the Icon School of Medicine in New York. And you were going through it, talking, I think, to people who were in psychiatry. But then there was a kind of summing up of many of the small points. And the one word you wrote next to it all was the word freedom. Well, I think it's really an important concept because I think this medicine really makes me aware of freedom, liberation, or, you know, you can think about it in different ways, really. I think we all imagine we have free choice, but how much of our worlds are dominated by our conditioning or our habits or karma, however you want to think about it. You know, we kind of shape our worlds through these particular lenses we're wearing. As a psychiatrist, and I think anyone who's been in psychotherapy is very aware of how there are certain patterns that one finds throughout the course of one life. There's a relationship passion of how we tend to, the problems we tend to get into over and over again. The hope is in psychotherapy. If you're aware of them, you're going to stop making those patterns. And sometimes that happens. Most often, you know, we have more insight and awareness. I really feel psychedelic psychotherapy allows one to really have a chance to almost find the door out of our prison, which are our patterns, our characters, our conditioning, and to have new possibilities and an emergence into the full aspects of who we are, not based on our survival-based strategies from childhood in the environments we grew in. So I really feel it is a, a process of liberation and growth and new possibilities. Now here, you're deeply involved in training others in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. What's that like, setting up these training programs? Do you get people who show up at these things and you think they shouldn't be here? And if so, how do you deal with that? What is it you're trying to convey? Who are these people? Are they mostly physicians or others? Have many of them already been trained in MDMA psychotherapy? What can you say about your, your trainees? It is a, a really interesting training because it's a retreat-style training where there's an unfolding process that happens for the whole group. And it's very experiential. Everyone experiences a low dose and administers a low dose as well as the high dose and administers a high dose. So you get a lot of knowledge from the sharings. And by the end of the five days, you've had so much access to different experiences and what people have encountered, as well as listening and experiencing yourself and the unfolding safety and trust in the emergence within the group. So it's a really rich experience, not to mention tons of didactics thrown in there. So it's quite, quite an intense experience. 
And to your point of who applies, there's so much demand for training and knowledge in these new medicines, particularly ketamine. It's really open to practitioners. So a lot of them are psychiatrists. Sometimes we have anesthesiologists who even have clinics and want to understand more about the process or experience it themselves. ER doctors, nurse practitioners, psychotherapists. We really are multidisciplinary, but you know, open to healthcare workers and medical professionals, generally speaking. How much do you all need to be worried about the risks? I mean, we know that among people using ketamine in an illicit or unregulated context, that there are issues of dependence and addiction and some harms. We know it's not as dangerous as opioid addiction, for example, and there aren't the same risks of mixing with other drugs, but it is an issue. Um, what's your thoughts about that? I think it's it's definitely an issue. I think that we have to be much wiser about how are we prescribing all of these different medicines and ketamine. And I think that's what makes me a bit concerned as well about the more biological roots, because I think that does push someone more in that direction rather than opening up a process, which which I think is still an accelerated psychotherapy process. But I do think we have to be concerned and more knowledgeable and responsible about how we're prescribing and what the risks are and to identify how to best support individuals who do have a wild risk for substance abuse or dependency, because this can be an incredibly good treatment in that population too. It just has to be handled more thoughtfully and carefully. You know, I wonder, I mean, thinking about the areas of methadone and buprenorphine, I mean, methadone is this crazily overregulated area in the United States. It has really impeded, you know, the effort to make it access, as accessible as possible, in the, you know, while we're facing an opioid epidemic. Buprenorphine has required physicians, I think, to get some level of training, although maybe some of that is shifting. In ketamine right now, there's no requirement, right, that you have any training. Do you think there should be some requirement mandated by medical boards or other regulatory agencies? No, that's a really good question. I think training would be very helpful, depends on what you're being trained for. I mean, that's the thing is that you don't need any training. People come to our trainings because they want to learn, not because they're mandated to really learn. And then there's so many trainings popping up that, you know, it's hard for consumers to understand which is the right training to go to, because having a beautiful website doesn't really tell you very much. So I think training would be really important. Certainly, I can speak for myself. I can't imagine just becoming a ketamine provider for psychotherapy without having a lot of experience and seeking that out. I tend to be on the more very responsible side. So that's my character anyway. But I do think some training is really important because I think you can really in terms of first do no harm, get into trouble if you don't know what you're doing or what the doses are, what the concerns are. There is such a focus on scaling and access and so much commercial gain that's entering into the field, which might have its benefits too. The problem I see in this real mad rush of access and commercial gain are we going to have a predictable backlash to that? So instead of actually winding up ahead, that everything is going to, if things get very sloppy and there's casualties popping up and addiction and dependency, are we going to have a short-lived moment of this growth when everything then has to come back and swim to the other direction of being regulated and medicalized and shut down and limited, which maybe is an important balancing act. But I think it would be nice to have a little bit more thought in deciding instead of, you know, having the decisions made because people are rushing too quickly and carelessly. 
Well, Gita, listen, I love what you're doing. I love the way you think about this. I love the way you describe it in the terms of dance and choreography. And I love your vision for it. So thank you ever so much for being my guest on Psychoact. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I enjoy talking to you, Ethan. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at one 833 779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Next week, I'll talk with Hamilton Morris, the brilliant young journalist, scientific researcher, and creator of Hamilton's Pharmacopeia. I even would go so far as to say I became a journalist as a reason to talk to Alexander Shulgin. You know, that was that was probably one of the early <laughs> motivators was, you know, why would he talk to me? Well, maybe he'd talk to me if I were writing an article about him or, you know, maybe then that would be some incentive. And that was kind of one of the main things that interested me about journalism at the beginning was that it was a license to be curious about things that otherwise you would have no legitimate reason to ask questions about. Why would somebody talk to an annoying college student about their work? They have better things to do. They're busy. But if he's working for a magazine and he's writing an article or making a short documentary, well, maybe we'll give him a couple hours. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and...
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free at 